So this week, we're truly privileged to be able to share the story of Dr. Steven Snyder. What an amazing, humble man who has made such a difference in the world of shoulder. Uh, he is a, was a private practice orthopedic surgeon at the Southern California Orthopedic Institute, where he has trained some of the most remarkable shoulder surgeons in our country and around the world. Uh, been in practice for over 40 years. He finally retired about three years ago. But we share some remarkable stories about the clean slate of developing a new specialty, right? You have this camera, there are no instruments. How do you position the patient? How do you even do anything inside? You can look, but what can you do when you get there? And he tells his remarkable story of the education. And then we also talk about some shared personal stories. And then of course, his time now as the chief medical officer of Pristine Surgical, which is a unique company now manufacturing a disposable arthroscope. So a truly iconic individual in orthopedics, humble, kind man. It is a privilege for us to be able to share this. I know you're going to love it. Hashtag follow the fro. From medical media, this is The Author Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast, where everyone knows by now we bring you the best of the best in orthopedics. I am so excited today. We literally have one of the great orthopedic surgeons on the planet that has been so willing to join us. We have Dr. Steven Snyder, who's a world-renowned orthopedic surgeon who specializes in shoulder. He's the founder of the famous Southern California Orthopedic Institute, known as SCOE. He's currently retired from clinical practice. He's the chief medical officer of Pristine Surgical and literally is one of the original pioneers of arthroscopic shoulder surgery. Dr. Snyder, what a pleasure to have you on. Well, thank you, Scott. What a pleasure to be with you finally. Yeah, we've been we it took us a couple of links, but we got it done. And Grace is here to save the day. The number one producer in the land. Okay. So, you know, so Dr. Snyder, we always start at the beginning with these these shows. We like to get the history. Where were you born? You know, when did sort of, you know, medicine and orthopedics come into play? I know you spent some time in Oregon, but give us the story. Yeah. Okay. First, ground rules. No, no more flashy uh, comments. I, I get embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll keep it real for sure. Okay. No problem. Listen, uh, Scott, um, I grew up uh, kind of from a humble beginnings. Uh, I I was born and raised in a place called Lewiston, Idaho. And if you know your Pacific Northwest history, that's where the Snake River and the Clearwater River come together and cross and go down to the Columbia. So the name Lewiston comes from Meriwether Lewis, right across the uh, the river from Clarkston, William Clark. So, uh, you know, we're steeped in that history. Uh, we have Indian Reservation just down the street. Uh, the only real um, manufacturing in Lewiston is the pulp and paper mill, which uh, I worked in for several summers growing up. And uh, we have a lot of agriculture in that. Uh, not a lot of uh, high tech, you might say. But I, my wife and I both uh, grew up there all through high school, and then we went away. 
So interesting. So first of all, thank you for the history lesson at the Ortho Show. We're happy to provide some cool, unique details that we weren't thinking about. So, you know, you're you're in this sort of rural town and there's not a lot going on as far as tech, as you as you described. At what point are you thinking to yourself, like, where where's the mentor? Where's the person that sort of led you down the path, perhaps for medicine? Well, first of all, I'll say it wasn't through my family. Um, my dad was a chemist. Uh, I had nine brothers and sisters. Um, so, you know, it wasn't like what we call a wealthy family. Um, I was, I guess, blessed and cursed by being uh, a good athlete. Um, I was, a, you know, football player, captain of the team and all that stuff. As a little guy, 180 pounds, uh, but I, I was a little bit too fast for my own good, and uh, so I tore my ACL the first time uh, in my junior year. Um, in those days, there was no ACL reconstruction, but they sure knew how to take out menisci. So. Yeah, they wanted, they wanted the guaranteed knee replacements down the line, well, right? You know, what they guaranteed was, um, and my surgeon told me this in the recovery room, he says, well, we, you know, you tore your ACL, we took out the meniscus, so it won't bother you. But uh, now you'll be able to cut around corners better without <laughs> that ACL. <laughs> and, you know, he was right that <laughs> oh, that is too funny. So was this in high school when you first yeah, this injury? Was yeah. junior year, but see, I, I was lucky um, in, in a lot of regards. I, I um, played against um, a big team from Boise uh, called Bora, and uh, it turns out that the head football coach and the backfield coach from Bora were hired to go to the University of Idaho. And uh, I played against them and had a couple good games. And so when, uh, even though I was uh, one ACL short, they still recruited me to go to Idaho to play football. But at the last minute, the two of them were hired to go to Oregon State. And so they honored the scholarship offer. And I went to Oregon State where I, I had a full scholarship to play football. So uh, even though I was kind of gimped up, uh, people didn't understand really what it meant in those days. So I got out, uh, and and same with my wife, Annie. She went to the University of Washington. Her dad told her uh, she needed to meet a rich uh, doctor. Uh, she didn't, he didn't want her to marry me, and so he wouldn't let her go anywhere where I got a scholarship. And uh, so she went to the University of Washington. Uh, I went to Oregon State, and... Um, that's where this medicine thing all started. You had no choice. I mean, if you fell in love with your wife and you were going to marry her, according to her father, you had to become a doctor. <laughs> I did. I did. But, uh, you know, this football was kind of uh, abbreviated my, uh, I, both by, I think, my skill and my, and my knee. Both of them uh, really weren't probably at the highest level you needed for that level of football. But I tore my other knee uh, as a freshman and uh, had surgery on that by a guy named Don Slocum. And you're a bit young, Scott, to remember, but Don Slocum was one of the original founders of the Sports Society. And uh, he's in Eugene, Oregon. 
uh, they've got a very prominent te uh, team of uh, orthopedists and sports doctors there. But Don was my doctor and I mean, the ultimate doctor in my mind, um, it kind of brings tears to my eyes because uh, I had surgery uh, Christmas and I was in the hospital and nobody was there. My folks couldn't get down. The Columbia Gorge was frozen over and they couldn't drive from Idaho. So anyway, he came in Christmas Eve and sat on my bed and uh, was talking to me about my future. Yes. <laughs> He says, well, you know, there wasn't anything we could do. And now both of your ACLs and three of your menisci are gone. He said, uh, you know, he says, are you smart? And I said, well, I'm, you know, high average. He says, great, you can be an orthopedist. <laughs> and that was, the, honestly, Scott, that was the very first time the idea of being a doctor ever entered my brain. I, I never even thought about it. Uh, I was going to be an engineer. I was going to be a football coach. You know, all the things kids dream sure, about. Sure. But never a doctor. I didn't have that person in my life to, uh, you know, to be my model or my mentor. And uh, he was the one. Yeah, you know, it's funny. It's a very common story, you know, here on the Ortho Show. We hear it a lot, right? How did you decide about orthopedics? And more often than not, it's some sort of an orthopedic injury. And then they meet someone that was very special to them. And, and then the light bulb goes on. Uh, and first and foremost, I want to thank you, you know, for calling me young. I don't get to hear that very often. So I appreciate that. But uh, so, you know, literally they take out three of your meniscus, you're down two ACLs, you know, your football career obviously is, is not looking too good at this point, but you know, then the passion or the idea of this uh, orthopedic surgery idea comes to mind. And so you go to University of Oregon for medical school. And uh, was that was that destined right away or was there a process there too? I don't know it, how it is with other guys who were on scholarships. Um, I, I didn't take uh, college too seriously the first year. Um, I had a lot of practice, a lot of working out, a lot of stuff to do. So when I made the change, it was uh, the end of my first year, and uh, I changed to pre-med. I had to buckle down and uh, and get my grades back. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I wasn't bad. I was around a three-point, but that wasn't going to get me anywhere. And so um, I ended up having to dedicate some time uh, to studies, which I did, and I was successful. And as a result, um, I did get a few offers to medical schools. And uh, But since I was now an in-state student in Oregon, I decided to stay in town. And that way, uh, when Annie graduated, she had a year to go. Uh, her dad sent her off to to France for a year to get away from me. So Jesus, he, he was he was giving you a hard time. You know, that he, just he doesn't seem fair. He was a tough time, but you know, good for him. Um, I think the guy I saw in high school, I wouldn't want my daughter to marry either. So, <laughs> well, you anyway, turned out you turned out pretty good. I'm sure he's pretty happy well, now. That's for we, sure. We turned out to be best of friends, uh, golfing awesome. buddies, uh, fishing buddies, and uh, but it it took a medical degree to. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. So, so you get your medical degree or you're working through and, and 
while you're in medical school, based on your experience, were you, were you pretty much set on orthopedics at that point, or did you still need a push or some other ideas? Yeah, I, I was set on orthopedics. I, you know, I mean, I was um, by nature kind of a mechanic anyway. Uh, I found I was good fixing cars and building tree houses and, you know, all that stuff that we're known for being orthopedic surgeons. And that was just my calling as opposed to the, some of the gentler things that uh, we could have done in medicine. So orthopedics was really the only thing that I was interested in. So, so it's interesting. We have a little bit of common ground, uh, uh, but it sounds like you went to, so from there to USC for residency, although the names, you know, it's so funny, you know, when you look back, you know, over decades, the names of the institutions and the programs will change, but it mm -hmm. looks like it was at USC that you did your residency. Well, that's true, but that didn't get me to California. Back in those days, uh, we would do an independent internship often. And I went to a place called Harbor General. Don't confuse that with Harvard General, Harbor, <laughs> Harbor General. Okay. Which is, yeah, which is a wonderful UCLA-affiliated uh, county hospital in uh, Torrance, California. And uh, I was lucky in that uh, it was really the number one hospital for uh, applicants for internships from our hospital or from our medical school every year. And they would always take two people from Oregon, and I was lucky enough to be one of them. Um, so I was thrilled to get out of Portland uh, in the rain. My knees were starting to ache by that time <laughs> and uh, uh, get down to California. And that was my introduction to sunshine and happiness. So, so residency though at USC, and you stayed in well, LA at that point. Actually, again, I have to say no. Again, uh, it was uh, I signed up for residency at a place called Orthopedic Hospital. It was started as a children's hospital, but then soon became a total joint uh, general orthopedic hospital right in LA. But then. Uh, Soon after I joined there, after my first year, uh, a new chairman came, a guy named Augustus Sarmiento, and he came from Florida, and when he did, he combined the USC program and the orthopedic hospital, Rancho Los Amigos, uh, Good Sam uh, Veterans Hospital. He combined them all into one program, so even though I, I was an orthopedic hospital resident, I finished my residency with two years at, at the county USC, and uh, I thought that made made a real nice uh, balanced program. But I see Carlin Jobin there in 1980, yeah. so you spent some time there too. Oh yeah, well, see, I went in the army. I was a real doctor. I like to say I was a general medical doctor, which is another name for a, a family doctor. And um, I was a captain, so I was the commander of a clinic and um, had a lot of corpsmen and a lot of nurses working for me. And then I came back and then did the, um, the residency. So I had that three years. Now, the reason that was important was because a couple of my intern buddies, a guy named Jim Taboni, uh, number one, 
uh, had gone to Curlin Job and another guy named Alan Richardson. So, and uh, even Roger Larson. And, and so they gave me advice. And, um, and they also acted as good friends when I came back to LA. But um, the advice was, Steve, with uh, your personality, you probably ought not go to UCLA. People bash you around over there. <laughs> so, <laughs> I love it. Through Curling Joe, he was a junior partner by then. And he invited me to come over. They were short a fellow. And uh, I... Um, I had saved up three months of vacation time because my wife was in law school and um, I couldn't really go anywhere. So I used those three months to do an externship uh, at Curl and Job, and that was just a wonderful time. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying because I did my fellowship at Curl and Job in 95, 96, and obviously Jim Taboni is one of my you know great mentors. Dr. Mm -hmm. Job, Job was still practicing, but I'm thinking back to 1980 i mean i think the clinic had just opened up you know not too too long before that maybe in the early 70s uh so curlin had to been practicing at that point too yeah. uh, what a you know just some great people just hanging out working with and trying to learn as much as you can oh yeah yeah frank joe you know i i did a little talk a while ago for uh or a special group and they asked me the same kind of thing. Who were the people who were influential? Pick four people. And uh, of course, my dad and his engineering and all that. Frank Job had to be, I mean, fabulous guy. You know, the fourth one, uh, I had to combine all my partners. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I couldn't, I couldn't separate them. I had, I had four partners when I started in practice right after residency. And they're just the most wonderful people you could ever want to work with. All right. So I, I want to transition to something which I think is truly remarkable. I mean, I, I have so many questions. You know, you literally are one of the pioneers of shoulder arthroscopy, right? I mean, you're in the early 80s. There's not even a camera attached to this thing. You're looking through your eyeball down the scope to be able to do things. What, at what point did you recognize that, you know, arthroscopy and the shoulder go together and that you're going to have to innovate because you, you're you going to have to create. This didn't exist. You couldn't just pop in and scope a shoulder like we do nowadays. So walk us through that history of how you, how, how that developed. Oh, those were, those were wonderful times because, you know, somebody with just a little bit of creativity uh, can make things happen when you've got a void, you know, a uh, a, a clear canvas and so many things um luckily because i spent the time with frank job i learned how to operate on a shoulder with the patient on their side frank would always take up these great big beautiful hands and he you know lay the patient on their side to do the rotator cuff and, and uh so that was automatic for me and of course lanny johnson the same thing when Dr. Fox met Lanny Johnson, Lanny wasn't doing a lot of shoulders, uh, mostly knees, but then he got into shoulders shortly after that. And, and he always operated with the patient on their side. So for me, you know, my training as well as my experience uh, uh, made it perfect for me. And, but they, we needed a way to hold the arm up. And, you know, sometimes we'd put the rope over the IV stands or 
the standard. Sometimes we put it over the light. But I figured I was a little better than that. So I got a big ladder and I climbed up to the roof of the operating or the ceiling of the operating room. And I screwed an eye bolt into the ceiling. And I still have pictures of that. And that's how we suspended the arm. And then I made one of my first products. It's the arm holder from Arthrex. It's called a three-way arm holder. And um, that was uh, just what you did. You just made something to work. And that goes through all, all of these things we did. I mean, we could see pathology. I was extremely creative. And we'd sit down together and talk about problems we were having. And then we'd just make something. And even up to suture anchors and shuttles and stitchers. And you, you remember the Casperi punch? What a great tool that was. We used, used that for years. Um, and so, uh, and all the stuff with decompressions, Harvard Elman was right down the street. And many of the guys listening won't know Harvard Elman, but it's a real important name. Uh, Harvard was. Um, a real shoulder doctor. And um, by that, I mean a UCLA professor, but in private practice also. And um, But he was uh, president of Shoulder and Elbow Society back in the days when they wouldn't let arthroscopists in. But Harvard became the halfway guy. He wanted to uh, learn and did learn how to do arthroscopy so he could do subacromial decompression. And in fact, he came to my clinic and we spent wonderful time together making videos of his technique for doing decompressions. And till the day he died, he used those, <laughs> those, uh, those videos. So it's truly amazing. I mean, because we take it for granted now, all of the, the instrumentation. But I mean, I hearken back to my days of training, you know, when I was in residency with, with John Richmond and then the suture anchor, you know, first came out. Um, and like you could put the scope on the shoulder and you could see a lot of cool stuff, but it's like you didn't have a lot of tools in your bag to be able to do things. Right. And so it was mostly open surgery. Maybe you stuck the camera in to take a look and see what was going on. Then you put down the camera and then everybody would open it up and they would do whatever they were going to do, rotator cuffs or instability repairs. But it was true, you know, pioneers that started developing the cannulas, the instrumentation, and then being able to transition to be able to do what is something that was only could be done open can then be done arthroscopic. And even in the earliest days in the 90s, we weren't doing rotator cuff repairs and instability repairs. They were all being done open. So you were sort of way ahead of the curve on that. Well, remember, um, I did have teachers and I, I really need to give credit. I One of my uh, serendipity moments was uh, early on, still in the 80s sometimes, say, let's just say around 85, I got invited to go to um, London to give a talk at the um, their big orthopedic meeting. It's like their academy. And I gave a talk and I had developed this system for doing a diagnostic arthroscopy. That's how unsophisticated. But I, you know, being in the military, step one, step two, step three, and there were 15 steps of anatomy that I'd identified in the shoulder that I thought everybody should look at every time. Not just because that way they'll know what the anatomy is doing, but it also 
taught the students to be able to rotate, translate, and piston the scope so that they could see every part of the anatomy that was visible with the scope. So I presented that in London. And when I finished the talk, I thought it was pretty good. And uh, nobody clapped. It was just like, boo, get him out of here. And uh, I hung my head and I walked down the aisle like that. And I, I went out into the hallway and I'm looking for a beer. I got to have a beer. And all of a sudden in the door on the far end of the hallway, I hear this guy screeching. And I look up and it's Dr. F. And he's jumping up and down. Oh, come over here, you know. And he, he happened to be at that meeting. Uh, I don't know why, but he was just starting his uh, San Diego meeting. And he says, oh, I didn't know you were doing this. You got to help me with my meeting. And I was doing a like a, a video sharing uh, thing. Internet hadn't really been invented yet, but videotapes had. And so we had a little club with the Arthroscopy Association called the Shoulder Arthroscopy Study Group. And I said, okay, yes, but you got to help me with this study group. And that soon became uh, a thing, thing they call ViewMedi. But, but we were sending these videos all around for people to view and comment. And then Ash started his meeting and, and uh, a true friendship started that crazy day in London. I mean, Rick Angelo tells a very similar story. You know, he is one of the pivotal moments in his career when he was invited to, you know, be able to give a talk at, at that course. So, you know, it's just, again, I mean, it's just so profound. We take it for granted today, the amazing, sophisticated things that we can do, you know, arthroscopically. Uh, many of the, many, many of our residents and fellows are no longer even taught open surgery. It's become sort of a, uh, something that, that that's sort of an antique, but you know, I just think it's so profound the the process and the time spent on that whiteboard that you talked about, that clean slate to be able to to generate an entirely new subspecialty within orthopedics. And you know, you've been a mentor to so many great shoulder arthroscopy, the SCOE fellows, as we call them, who are spread across the country and the world, who have spent time with you. I want to share three sort of personal events that I share with you, some of which you may remember, some you may not, but I, I think they're really amazing stories. Um, the first is, I'll, it's, I'll, I'll, you, you brought up Vumetti, and I was so proud, I came up with some new arthroscopic, super pectoral biceps tenodesis procedure, right? And I posted it on Vumetti, and I would look every day to see if anybody else had watched it. And then all of a sudden, this message pops up from Dr. Steven Snyder. Scott, I really like that technique. Well thought out, you know, Stephen. I was like, I called my mother immediately. I made it. Dr. <laughs> Snyder's commented on my procedure. What an amazing thing. So that to me was a very special moment um, You for you, not so much, but really very special for me. There was another really special moment that you and I shared, which again, I'm not sure you're familiar, but Katari Yamakado, who... Uh, is a Japanese orthopedic surgeon. You know, one of the things that had always been this great controversy with rotator cuff repairs had always been the single row, the SCOE repair with the crimson duvet versus a double row transosseous equivalent. And which one was better, right? And for years, you guys went in your camp and there were other people in the other camp and your protégés and mentees would all sort of, you know, go to bat for each other. And then this, this young man from Japan simply 
came up with a study and he did a randomized controlled trial. He did your exact technique. He did uh, the double row technique and the results were equivalent. And mm -hmm. something that had been you know, such a controversial subject for a decade. And I knew Katara because we had studied together in Raynham doing arthroscopic Latterge. So I was present at, at the at the Anna meeting when he received his award. And I'll vividly remember you walking up to the microphone and you walked up and you asked him several very, very succinct, simple questions. And then you said, well done, you know, doctor. You sat down and single row versus double row had been decided. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> so I'm not sure well, if you remember the moment. You know, um, I think I do. <laughs> I think I do. Yeah, no, it was really a special moment. And he was so proud, again, because I was waiting for him because I, I knew that he was receiving the award. Gave him a big hug afterwards. And he was just like, and Dr. Snyder said it was good. You know, so it was like <laughs> a great moment for him as well. well so, so another great story that I want to share with I, who I think is one of your dear friends and, and, and mentees, which is which is Donnie Buford, who's a, a dear friend of both of ours. You know, and I'm, you know, moving around and I'm like in my in the late 90s and I'm in my orthopedic residency and I'm learning about all these anatomical things. And then, you know, one of the times J.R. Richmond says, yeah, that's just a Buford complex. You don't have to worry about it. And I'm thinking like a Buford complex, right? Anybody <laughs> that like has their name attached to a complex, it's an anatomy structure in the shoulder. You must have been born in like 1800 or something, right? You know, that's, that's what the anatomist sort of did. And we had Donnie on the show, and then he starts telling the story about he's in high school and friends of the family, and he comes and spends time with you, and you do this anatomical study, and you figure this thing out, and you just look at Donnie and say, you know something, you know, we should call this the Buford Complex. And to this day, that's what it's called, and that's the story. A high school kid comes to work with you, and you take the time to spend time with him and help him in his career, and you two are still very dear friends to this day. And what an, what an amazing, remarkable story. I love to tell that. Well, it's a fun story, and you know Donnie, so you know what a brilliant uh, teacher and, and creative guy he is. But at the time when he came to the operating room, he was in high school. You know, he was a very talented baseball player and actually played professional baseball while he was in medical school. And his family, his dad was a all-pro baseball player, his brother as well. So, you know, they're very high-level athletic people, but Donnie always wanted to be a sports surgeon. So he came over in high school and we did some projects where he put together some sound slide programs so the uh, baseball players and young kids particularly and the folks when they'd come in they'd sit in a little booth and play these sound slide programs most of the people listening won't even know what that is but he had already earned his chops and then uh, in the operating room i was giving him a little bit of uh, a little bit of a goose there because he was there with his girlfriend and she was interested in medicine as well but uh, I was quizzing Donnie and I said Donnie could you explain to I'm not going to say her name she's not in the picture now <laughs> but but anyway uh, could you explain to her what this anatomy is and of course here's this big thick cord-like ligament 
and it's hooked to the biceps, but there's no anterior superior glenoid or uh, labrum at all. And Donnie starts talking about it and he starts sweating because it's a little bit unusual. And I said, well, Donnie, that's a Buford complex. Don't you like it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, did he get it at the moment or was that just sort of subtle? I, I think he stumbled a bit, but uh, he then he went through, he and this, again, nice looking girl came into the office and reviewed a couple hundred sequential videotapes to write the paper on the Buford complex. And then MRIs weren't really that common in those days, but when it came out, uh, you know, the radiologist just went nuts with that. But his paper, and then he presented it as, as a high school kid, he presented it at the academy. So <laughs> I mean, that's unbelievable. I mean, you, oh, can't, you yeah. can't make it up. You cannot well, make one, it up. One last thing, he decided to do his, uh, his residency in Parkland in, in Dallas. So he went down and joined his, his guys and, and everybody looks at him because he's their orthopedic surgeon, you know, young orthopedist and Buford. Was your dad or your grandfather? Exactly. The one and Donnie the... says he, he started blushing. Uh, <laughs> he says, no, I'm not dead. <laughs> uh, it's and, so true though. I mean, I'll never forget it. We had him on as one of our earlier guests. I'm from Baltimore. We have some friends and family back in the day and he, he told that story and I was just so blown away. And now the way you're telling it now, even more, you know, really sort of amplifies that message. What a, what a wonderful story to be able to share. So, so listen, Dr. Snyder, I think I want to spend a couple more minutes before we close on, on your latest project and what you're doing, which I think is really very, very important. Uh, it's called Pristine Surgical. Uh, and uh, tell us a little bit about this disposable arthroscope that you've developed at this point and, and why it's really starting to gain favor. Yeah, Scott, first let me say, um, I didn't invent it. I didn't think think it up. Um, I was fortunate to be asked to help with it. So we have a completely different thing that I had originally seen. <laughs> and they invited me when I decided to slow down in my practice three years ago. Uh, they invited me to uh, be a consultant with the company and then with the idea that when I retired completely back in August, I'd be the chief medical officer, and that's where I am. And I'm happy to say that uh, the scope is now mature. Uh, my partner, Mark Gettleman, will do first in man or woman, depends, um, in uh, the second week in April, and then we'll be ready for um, for distribution. So we're excited about that. So is it agnostic to the tower so it can be utilized with any of the towers that are available? Yeah, the only thing you need to do arthroscopy is a little box. A um, you peel the box open. You scan a QR code on the box that links the, that scope to a certain uh, independent website. Um, you plug it into a little uh, a little unit called an IPU. That's the only thing that you need, both to connect it to the cloud and to generate the uh, the images and the video. So there's just you plug into that. You don't need a light source. Um, you do need water, but it'll plug into any scope, so it's agnostic for that. And you can plug into any monitor. Uh, we prefer a 4K monitor, so you can utilize it 
the 4K output of the chip. But that's all you need. Uh, you could do this actually in your garage if you have a source of uh, uh, water and electricity. And so all of those uh, those big things like the um, the fiber optic light generators, the xenon light sources, and the big camera boxes, you don't need any of that. And then when you're done, you just throw it away in the trash can. You know, I'm a California boy. <laughs> we we got to recycle it somehow. How are we going to recycle it? <laughs> there you go. Um, we've made a uh, an arrangement with a company that every orthopedist knows. Their name is Sharps. They're the ones that supply the red boxes for the operating room to throw your your used or recyclable equipment in. They um, they will take the scope. Uh, they'll recycle it and not. They don't really recycle it and they don't reprocess it. What they do is they sterilize it, grind it up, extract all of the um, the worthwhile metals, that, you know, all the things from the chips and all that. And the usable plastic, they, they reclaim all that and then uh, recycle it in a um, environmentally sound way. So a disposable arthroscope that you can peel, pack, and open gets plugged into a little box that goes up to the cloud, which can then be shown into any 4K monitor that's sitting in, in your garage if you want or if you're in surgery center. Mm -hmm. When you're mm -hmm. done with the procedure, it will be efficiently uh, disposed of, recycled, and reprocessed to get the materials out. And there's no more sterilization, right? There's no no, no. no more risk of uh, potential infection by having bacteria stay on the scope that wasn't properly cleaned, for example. Could be one of the reasons for arthroscopic infections that we see. Uh, and it can really democratize the process of being able to perform arthroscopy anywhere in the world if you have the things that, that uh, are required to do so. Pretty cool. So this type of technology, I think, is is really long overdue to be able to, to be efficient. And I think it's a wonderful sort of full circle story for you in your orthopedic career where you're starting, where you have to stick your eyeball onto the end of a scope to be able to look in with no cameras. And now, again, the cameras are replaced by a chip. And here you have this disposable uh, arthroscope. It really is you know, quite remarkable. So, you know, Dr. Snyder, as we're closing here, um, one word comes to mind as I as I think about our talk together in, in your history. That's humility. Uh, you have been you've really made profound changes in the way we do things in, in the shoulder and the the time and energy that you put into that to that whiteboard that clean slate to develop shoulder arthroscopy has influenced literally thousands of surgeons and then scores of thousands of patients beyond. So, you know, I just want to thank you for your time and energy and an amazing career. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you today and we're very fortunate to be able to share your story. Thanks Scott, very much. It's been fun. No, it's my pleasure. What a great guest. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the ortho show till next time.